0: Welcome to Once and Future Authors, Changing Lives One Book at a Time. I'm Stephanie Larkin, an author, independent publisher, and book coach. And each week we will be discussing processes and strategies to get your book finished and published and meet authors and publishing experts to tap into their experiences and expertise. There is one book out there that can change your life, and that is the book you write. So welcome aboard. This podcast is produced by Red Penguin Books, an independent publishing company working with authors of all genres. Whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or perhaps even hundreds of handwritten sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer, visit redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Once and Future Authors podcast. I'm Stephanie and I am so delighted to be joined by, well, Jameson Green today is a once and uh, I guess a future author. He's up to his second edition of an incredibly important and popular book called Becoming a Visible Man. I believe it was the biggest selling book by his publisher. So his publisher is thrilled to have him here. So we're up to the second edition. So please welcome Jameson Green. Thanks for joining
1: me. Thank you, Stephanie. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Oh, such a pleasure! And and uh, how does it feel to be the uh, penultimate person for your publisher? And you're what? Uh,
1: well, it's an academic press, so you know they often don't expect to sell large numbers of copies. So, it, you know, it's a it's a great honor, though. It's a great distinction, um, and I think it, it what it means basically is that my book, which was originally published in 2004 um is officially a classic um in the in this field and um and now it's been it's been re-released in a revised second edition and um sold over 450 copies the first week after publication in september
0: 2020 right away right out of the box yep have a picture here of Becoming a Visible Man, the second edition. (laughs) Now, the first edition came out in 2004, you said? That's right. Okay, so I'm sure, um, and you'll be telling us a bit about the book, but there's been a lot of changes since then, and I'm sure there were updates you had to put into the book.
1: Exactly. Um, At first, when they approached me and saying, you know, we realized your book was such a big seller for us that we, we wanted to give it a new treatment, new cover. We'd love to have you write a little preface. And maybe if you have time or interest, you could update some of the text. I'm like, interest? I'll make time because there's so much has changed. Oh, my God. So much has changed because a lot of the activism that I began doing in the 90s came to fruition after the book came out. And then led to even more um accomplishments for the community through the in the in the twenty first century so um
0: imagine how yeah. in two thousand and four, I'm sorry that I didn't have you on or know you then um just to read a little bit of your book description um at least two generations of transgender non-binary and gender non-conforming people have emerged since Becoming a Visible Man was first published in 2004 but the book remains a beloved resource for trans people and their allies. Two generations of people were addressing and two generations of legal change, uh, societal change, was it a second edition or did you start from scratch?
1: <laughs> no, because I've actually the first half of the book really is a lot of explanatory and, and um, defining kind of stuff. I did add some things that are historical things that I learned since that since it was published, added into the first half of the book. The second half of the book is really where most of the changes take place. Although throughout the books, vocabulary changes have, are, have been incorporated, Uh, vocabulary around the transgender world changes almost every week. So, so, um, so there's a lot that, that I, that I did to bring the whole thing up to date, but the, most of the new, new material that that reflects, um, Things that happened after 2004 or 2003, when I actually finished the manuscript, as you know how things go in the publishing business, um, that's those. That's all added in sort of. The, it's not exactly a chronological text, so. Um, but that is where it would flow naturally to appear in that that portion of the book. So, but it's important to, if you read it before, and I'll tell you this, many people have told me, even before the second edition was even contemplated, that they would reread this book religiously on an annual basis and every year got something more out of it.
0: Oh, I, you know, I get that. I didn't, I didn't get to read the 2004 edition. I thank you for sending me the second edition. So I don't know what the changes are, but there's so much in there, and I'm glad you mentioned vocabulary changing. When you say that it changes that often, it kind of puts my mind at ease because I feel like sometimes I just can't keep up. Yeah. <laughs> I finally get a, everything all straight, and then I open my big, fat mouth, and whoops, the rules changed again.
1: Yeah, you have to be very, very flexible in, in the trans world, very flexible. Yeah. I mean, these, this is even for people who are... Um, not necessarily for people who are trans, people who are trans are living it. So although some people do get rigid about various things along the way, just like anybody else does, but providers of healthcare, for example, or people who are interacting with the trans community in any professional capacity or or social capacity do need to be aware that things are going to change. And if you can sort of like, I don't know, I describe it as as um, being the, a Zen surfboard writer. If so, you always go along with your knees and ankles bent, and you're very fluid, and you're ready to shift whenever the, anything happens, and it's all good.
0: Right, but, but so. some of us are not all that shiftable, you know? Well, you,
1: you, can, you can learn it. It's something, it's a, it's a skill you can learn. I love that. And, and you don't have to be that way in all aspects of your life. If you can hold on to certain things if you need to, but if you're going to start looking at trans stuff, that it pays to get a little bit relaxed about it.
0: I like that attitude. And for all those who will get to see us rather than just hear us, uh, Jameson is doing this whole relaxed. I'm getting Zen just watching you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Acknowledging that there are parts of my life, you know, like my little OCD color coding my desk. I can be rigid over there, but I have to be relaxed over here.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: And that's a great way of phrasing it. You know, that, that it doesn't mean changing your whole personality, but certain things require something different of you.
1: That's right. Well said.
0: <laughs> so how was the reception of this new book? You said 450 copies the first week. Obviously, there was a hungry audience
1: yeah and it, there was no publicity essentially I mean it just boom and there there it was and whoa it just shot off so and I don't have any up, more updated statistics I just know the first week but um, um, I, I do know I mean I hear from people periodically that that they just went out and got the book and wow and they and often they're people who have read the first edition so you know, I, I, I worried that people would think this is, this isn't any different. It's just the same as before, you know, but, but they haven't, no, if they feel that way, they haven't said it to me yet. Um, and I hope that nobody really feels that way because it's true there, you know, the, the material that is valid and useful today is still present in the book. There is new information and I, like I can't go into detail. I mean, one of the major things that's changed, and and part it's part of the work that I that I started doing in the '90s, is access to healthcare, which is, for example, the removal of exclusions from insurance policies, blanket exclusions that would tell that would say to, to trans people. Uh, oh, you've been paying your premium for how many years, and now you're trans. You're identifying as trans. Um, sorry, you can't have access to healthcare anymore. You know that's what it used to be like, and um, you know th- through a lot of the work that I and many many other people along the along the way have done, that isn't the case um, as universally as it used to be. I mean, it's th- people still run into problems, but. Um, so I can't because insurance is administered on a state level. It's state by state by state. So when policies change, policy changes happen, they have to happen on a statewide basis in 50 States. So I can't describe that in a book that's, you know, 250 pages long. Um, That's I can say very basically watch your insurance policy, but, um, and I can say that things happened, you know, that, that we did make progress, but I can't go into all the specifics about it. It's not that level of, of detail. And then of course there's been so many legal cases that have been uh, incredible wins for trans community. And so I've, I've highlighted a few of those and generally spoken about the, the fields of of influence that they reach that those cases will reach but you know it's not a it's not a textbook in the sense that it's an encyclopedia Um, it's meant to be to be read and felt and experienced and absorbed and and i want people to come away from it not necessarily feeling like they know everything there is to know, but that they know that trans people are part of humanity.
0: I wonder, is it frightening? Now, of course, you work in this area Bailey, but when you write a book like this, and it is such a popular book, you are kind of the torchbearer of the message. Um, is, is it a little frightening? Have you gotten any you know, people, well, who do you think you are to speak for all of us? Kind of, uh, an attitude.
1: Well, I've over the years, I've heard that. I'm, I've always been very, very careful to say that I do not speak for everyone. Um, I can, I am an, And I am an expert in many aspects of this, but I am mostly an expert in my own story. um, I try very hard to be as inclusive as possible and to, to to bring in other voices. And always, most of my activism has been about actually empowering other people, just demonstrating that it's possible to do something and not saying, I own this now because I did it, but saying, look, I did this, you can do it too. You know, that, That has been my approach, and so usually when people have that kind of "well, who are you?" reaction, it it tells me they're not familiar with my work. And most people that that I know in the community that that do know me um, will will say to somebody who says who reacts that way, they'll say, you know, well, you ought to read the book and. It's not, (laughs) or, you know, he's not like that or sit down with him, talk to him. He's really approachable and, and not, not trying to tell you how to be, you know, how how to be a man or, you know, what, what he thinks you should do. I mean, that's not, that's not where I'm coming from. And people who, who know me know that.
0: Right. And isn't that the case so often with, with all sorts of topics, the people who are, critics, they didn't read the book, or they didn't, they didn't meet or speak with you personally, or those are the people who criticize the most and Right.
1: Yeah.
0: What you said about um, not necessarily an expert on, you know, I'll call it the trans experience for everyone, but you are an expert on your experience. What a great way of phrasing that for all of our writers out there, you know? We say you should write what you know, but what you're saying is that you're writing and you're not trying to be anything other than I'm writing from the place of my experience.
1: Right, and my knowledge, I mean, I'm very widely read. (laughs) I'm very widely um, acquainted among professional fields that impact trans people. And um, I try to, I'm trying to be a bridge builder. I try to bring all that together and I try to, you know, educate across the board. For instance, in the in the early days, there was a lot of homophobia in the transgender community and a lot of transphobia in the gay community. Hmm. And I worked really hard to try to bridge that and make sure that people got rid of their phobia. Gotcha.
0: You were just hurting; they're just hurting themselves, and and they yeah. were- their own community in that
1: point. Exactly. People didn't realize that, I mean, gay people often said, we don't want T tacked on to LGB. We, you know, because they, their issues are different and we don't have anything to do with them. They don't have anything to do with us. And I would say, well, you know, trans people have lived in the gay community or around and are interacting with the gay community forever since time immemorial. And, our issues may be very different but our how we are impacted by lack of civil rights is the same and the prejudices that affect us are the same so if we band bind if, excuse me if we band together to uh, to work against these prejudices perhaps we can all benefit rather than pushing each other away and saying you don't matter you don't matter it all matter. Right.
0: No, that's a fabulous. Uh, I, I love that because you're absolutely right. If you splinter and, and fight against each other and have your own little civil war, you got enough problems out there.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and also, you know, people who are not LGBT or T often think that LGB and T are all the same thing that we all know each other, that if if they're trying to understand something about trans people, they can just ask a gay person. That's not true. Um, you know, they, if they want to understand something about homosexuality and they happen to know a trans person, they can talk to that trans person about it. Well, only if that trans person is also gay. Some are, some aren't, you know, so it's like yeah. anybody else. Well,
0: it's kind of so... Like- someone says, "Oh, you're from New York. Do you know so and so?" No.
1: Right. <laughs> right.
0: You know, yes, well, I think that we humans have a tendency to lump people into groups. It makes our understanding, you know, I guess in one sense it's helpful, but it's more hurtful than helpful.
1: Often it is. And I think holding it as a as a person, but also as a writer, if you hold everybody in their own unique way, you can develop a better relationship with each person. So if you're writing and you're writing a story with characters, for example, you you can't look at all your characters the same way just because you are the writer and you are in charge. If you actually look at each one of your characters as individuals and work with them, um, to understand them, your story will be much richer.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, when you're writing something like this, you know, I, we were just talking about how, I mean, there were laws passed or cases won yesterday. You know, um, Yeah. one of the scary things with a book, and I think this goes for all authors, but especially for you and someone who is writing something so incredibly timely that literally uh something happened yesterday that was a positive we always feel when we put it in a book you know gosh you know i don't want to send this to the publisher there's going to be changes and the fact that you even have a new one was that a, was that a fear
1: actually yes in fact um i wrote in in uh i guess it's in the see i think it's the last chapter i i mentioned i write about was the civil rights case that was, that was pending before the Supreme Court and how important this was and, you know, this kind of thing. And then literally three or four days after I had submitted the final changes, the Supreme Court announced their decision in that case, which was positive for the trans community. And I called the editor and I said, <laughs> I, can I squeeze in an afterword? I don't want to change any of the text that I've already submitted, but if I could just have a two pages at the end that you know can just be slapped in there, I can address this. and that's what I did. So and then of course, you know a couple of months later, some other thing happens, but you have to let go at a certain point, but that one that one was actually really, really important. and in the afterward, I was able to connect that event with something from the very early part of the book with some history that I had put in the earlier part of the book. And so I bridged the whole evolution of the trans, trans men in particular, trans men's community in that, in the afterward because of that Supreme Court case. So that was, that was really satisfying.
0: That's fabulous. But like you said, and then two months later, you would have made the same phone call. No,
1: I don't know. I don't think so. This one. I mean, you can always add stuff. You can always add stuff. But I think you have to there comes a point where you have to go. All right, this is good. If I want to focus on this other new thing, let's write an essay or let's, you know, let's uh, put together another thing that's not this book. Book needs to stand on its own.
0: Now, when you were writing the book, either version, um, were you thinking primarily of the trans community reading this and understanding themselves or the non-trans community reading this and understanding the trans
1: I actually, actually, my, my primary audience is everybody. Okay. Um, Whether you're trans or not, trans people don't know a lot about their own history. Trans people don't know a lot about their own medical situations. Trans people don't know a lot about resources that are available to them. And non-trans or cisgender people don't know anything about trans people. So, and you know, they don't know how how frightened trans people are, for example. They don't know how how seriously trans people struggle with their condition and the, and the situation they find themselves in and how much they have to debate to, in, or research to um, make decisions about how they're going to manage their lives.
0: How, how there are things that uh, a cisgender person would take for granted, and it's a struggle.
1: Yeah. But I also can connect, you know, I can, I can connect things like being a parent or being a child and connect that to ordinary life for, for cis people who don't who don't whos who don't think of trans people in these contexts you know they think of us either as something that ought to be erased or something that ought to that's that's frightening or whatever you know they don't they don't they don't round us out they don't they don't um, they don't think about us as human sometimes
0: as as somebody's child somebody's. yeah yeah True, you know. I think that people might have an image, you know, thirty-year-old man or something, but they don't actually see a whole range.
1: Right, and you know, people—it's only been recently that even trans people have been aware that trans people get old.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. Because yeah, that's also one of these things that now that, as you said, there are two more generations. Um, well, you know, now you can get old isn't that, isn't that a gift
1: yeah absolutely as many young trans people have have don't they don't have an image of themselves aging they have an, they don't often think they're going to live beyond the age of 30 or 40 years old and that's how they approach their lives oh, I, with that kind of fear and you know existential angst
0: and that's because
1: they just don't see it, you know, as a model for them? They don't see it as a model. They recognize the oppression that they that they experience on a daily basis. They don't know how they're going to survive. There, they see the assaults, that are the political assaults that are made on our community that, you know, people who have never met anybody who's trans will stand up and introduce legislation to put, to criminalize wise doctors who treat us you know that has actually happened in the united states in the past year so and when young trans people who don't have much world worldly experience see that kind of thing they they, you know it shuts them down it's an oppression
0: i see that i see that and i would see then that mental health issues are quite extensive
1: They can be, yeah, it can be very difficult. And at the same time, some of our most important um, technological advances have been made by trans people who are scientists and engineers. Some of our most amazing art has been created by trans people. Uh, There are incredible transgender lawyers out there litigating not just civil rights issues for trans people, but in all kinds of fields of the law. And there are trans doctors who are making incredible strides in terms of humanizing the populations and, and treating all kinds of people in, in more humanistic, more productive, more nurturing ways, just because of their trans experience.
0: Right, they come to it with a, a totally unique set of experiences that somebody else wouldn't have. Exactly. And the more young people can see that, especially older people, the more hopeful and less, you know, fatalistic, shall we say.
1: Yes, exactly. And old, there there has always been a generation of old trans people. um, And a lot of times they're hidden away. And the fact that now there's much more visibility for trans people, even older people are realizing they can have more of a life than they thought they could have.
0: Possibly even more of a life than they've ever had.
1: Yes. There you go. Exactly.
0: Which is, is such a gift to someone in you know, the twilight years to suddenly have more of a life than they've ever had. That's right. That's so wonderful that things have changed to that point. They're not perfect. No,
1: not yet there's a lot of work to do but i'm still excited about it you know and i'm really excited to see the incredible art new artists that are coming up um new films that are coming out new uh, well new lawyers that are graduating new doctors the doctors that are coming up now are just amazing wow yeah
0: that's just amazing i I was going to ask you if you could wave a magic wand and fix something in the world. But there's a part of me that wants to turn that to, what fix are you happiest with? What has been the most um, far-reaching, let's say, legally and societally, if there hmm.
1: is You know, it's hard to say to a certain extent, Um, I mean the work that I've done in insurance policy arena, which is based, I based my work in the workplace because I realized as an individual I had no power over insurance companies. Who has power? The customer. Who buys big insurance policies? Employers. So I leveraged the city of San Francisco as an employer to influence the the human rights campaign's corporate equality index and then worked with the human rights campaign to provide training for corporations to start meeting the corporate equality index requirement to have inclusive health coverage that would take care of their trans employees and to move their um you know, to, to make it just beyond much more inclusive and more far-reaching than just, oh, let's have a policy that says we don't discriminate. That was the first requirement. That was the big ask in the beginning, in 2002. Just add gender identity and expression to your non-discrimination policy. No, that's not enough. Uh, but we start there. And we build on that and and I think that and in many respects I think that's one of the most far-reaching things that I've done um, and I of course inc- brought in many 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 scores of people to help do trainings to you know to help develop policy you know all of this stuff but it's it started with a vision that I had. In the early mid 90s, actually, mid 90s in San Francisco, um, and was able, it took six years after I had this little spark of inspiration. And that, this part is described in the book where, but, um, you know, it's that I think is probably the most far reaching thing because it impacts trans people's ability to work, to get a job, to, you know, and then, and that, the fact that people, de- have a place to go means that universities and colleges will start to train trans people for those things. They will realize, oh, there's trans students. There's you know, I mean, I just it just expands. So that was that was probably the biggest sort of tangible thing. But really, in many respects, the the thing that I'm most proud of is the fact that in 1992 roughly, I said I said to the small support group that I was working with in San Francisco, I think we need to not hide. I think we need to not be ashamed of ourselves. I think that we need to tell people who we are because otherwise we cannot make the world safe for us. Who's going to do that if not us? And so I started doing that. And I think that, and I, and I know that, that my example has empowered thousands and thousands of people.
0: Well, I'm sure that was incredibly scary at first.
1: It was. It was. And people begged me, many people begged me not to be in a documentary film or not to go on television or not to start doing lectures or trainings you know because they feared that if people knew we were there that they would take away the few things that they actually had you know the the things they thought they had which they really it was it was paltry what we had back then but it you know people had had scraped so hard to get at that stuff they didn't want to lose it they were afraid if we overstepped our bounds they would say, oh, you don't deserve this anymore, but we're taking that away. Oh, we're not gonna do any surgeries on you anymore. No, we're never gonna give you hormones again. Yeah.
0: Kind of like when you have a little bit of sand or, or water and squeezing it so hard because you're afraid of
1: losing it. Yes, exactly. But I knew that if, that if, that if we didn't lose this underlying sense of shame, about who we are as human beings that we don't really deserve to be here that we would not survive
0: you were right and you didn't go backwards
1: so that's that's i think that yeah that's the big thing that i think is less visible less tangible than i that i'm proud of
0: that's fabulous That's and that's Brave, unbelievably courageous to take that step. I can't even imagine. Now, I know that if we could wave our magic wand and uh, get every um, person in the world to read the book, well, I mean, you're publisher. (laughs)
1: So would
0: I. (laughs) Check in the mail. But um, can can you give us a nugget? What would you love if, if? we could just, you know, put inside every single fortune cookie something that everybody would embrace. Is there something that, if you could just get us all to understand one thing, that would make the biggest change?
1: Well, I have this vision of the world that it's of a world where people are not afraid of. Of people who are different
0: mm.
1: and we're not afraid of other people's identities or beliefs Right. and because i think if we if we approach the world without that fear without that sense of scarcity that you know oh i have to hold on to my belief because You know, or find other people who share my belief and that they're okay, but anybody who doesn't, they're gonna hurt my belief. They're gonna take away my my belief or identity. They're gonna hurt my identity, they're gonna take away my identity. Why do you need to why does anybody need to take away someone else's belief or identity?
0: Right. And and that goes things. I love that you you equated it to that sense of scarcity, and that is a big problem, whether it's racism or Or phobia yep. or you know I don't like dogs, whatever it might be
1: yep. right it applies to almost anything and if we could approach life and I have to figure out a nice succinct fortune cookie way of saying this <laughs> but uh, if if we could approach life as if nothing was going to be taken from us right. and yet and we could be open to variety and see and learning from others that would i think really alleviate a lot of problems
0: well you know you started it with different is not scary you know uh, right. anything that is different does not and it's not threatening and that i think is a huge thing is that we as humans need to realize and that's why i said this goes to to racism and all sorts of things that uh, different does not mean threatening. And right. And the other part of what you're saying about scarcity, I, I love, and I certainly know I, nor the person who told me this, did not invent this, but um, when the tide comes in, all the boats rise together. And there's no reason for us to worry that we need our boat to go up higher by pushing other boats lower. That's not really the way it works.
1: Right. Yeah. As long as you're talking about boats, that's right. So you have to, if there are some things in which that doesn't really fly. In fact, I was just hearing, hearing this morning on, so on NPR about the economy. We used to think that if the economy went up, that all boats rose equally right. and that isn't true anymore. Right. No, what are the factors that went into that? So yes, if we can have a world in which all boats rise on, this, on the tide, that is wonderful. And if, it, if for some reason suddenly some people get more tide than others, what's happening and do we value that? Or do we, do we do something to correct the problem? Because we see that as a problem. That really we should be going for more equality and more equity
0: but other people gaining human rights doesn't take away my human rights.
1: Right, exactly, and there's a scene in, in the book where a, a, an educator asked, a professor, college professor, asked me, you know, the, the governor of California was supposed to sign one of two bills, where there were two bills going to his desk. One had to do specifically with gay rights and the other one had to do with LGBT rights. I think I I can't remember. And one may be, it may have been just trans and one may have been just gay, but he said, the governor said, I would not, I I will only sign one gay bill this year. (laughs) And so this professor friend of mine asked me, um, so which bill do you think he should sign? And I said, I didn't think civil rights were in such short supply that they had to be meted out on an annualized basis. You know, I mean, Seriously, that we don't we have an endless supply of civil rights, just like we have an endless supply of human rights, except we don't have human rights in the United States. We have civil rights. But that aside, um, we have an endless supply of civil rights. Why can't we share them?
0: That's beautiful. I'm so I'm going to say that over and over and over. It is an endless supply. making sure and that other people, who are different from yourself, ensuring that they have civil rights in no way takes away your civil rights.
1: Exactly. They
0: don't run out. Right. It's not like pie.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it's the scarcity model. Again, you know, if we operate completely on scarcity, then we all become hoarders. Exactly. But it isn't. An- and- yeah, and everything and the and the whole environment is, is is twisted because things are clumped and not distributed.
0: Right. And and people are scared and yep. they're hanging on to what they have because they're afraid that somehow when other people gain rights they become lesser somehow. Yes. They lose. But they don't and that's
1: just not true.
0: I think that that I think that is an actual you're absolutely right that that is the fear people have and if they can be assured and that's why I asked you know what is what would your magic wand say um you know different is not threatening and an endless supply of human rights i love mm-hmm. that. And get away from thinking that somehow, you know, I always thought that when when I hear that a law is passed and people are all up in arms about it or whatever, and I'm thinking, well, first of all, I mean, I love what you're saying about scarcity, but my feeling was also, what do you care? I mean, like, that's not, you know, I mean, I care on a human level that I, I certainly want human rights for all. But if it's not impinging on me, great. Like. Yeah. No
1: great. Should, should celebrate it.
0: Exactly, you know. I mean, that's kind of like you know. I'm in books, and if someone gets you know a bestseller, I'm you know great. Like that's not negatively impacting my life.
1: <laughs> yeah, know, right.
0: All in arms about it, you know. And that's the same thing, mm-hmm. you know. Either celebrate with them if if this is something that you're you know yay, or just kind of shut up. But really, it's just
1: <laughs> yeah. Go about your business. But you don't have to get all bent out of shape or attack anybody.
0: Right. You don't have to come to the party. If you don't want to come to the party, don't come. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> you don't have to hurt other people about it.
0: Yeah. I just don't get people. I, yeah. That's my whole life. I
1: just yeah. I like, I like people who come from kindness myself.
0: I agree. I absolutely agree. Well, and of course, my other magic wand that I would like is for everybody out there to go out and grab a copy of Becoming a Visible Man. Um, grab the second edition, even if you can get a rare first edition, <laughs> just so that you can catch everything that has changed since 2004. Um, tremendous amounts of change since 2004, and I'm guessing he's gonna have to write another one because I'm hoping that we are on such a positive upward trajectory.
1: We hope. That. I hope to write a whole different other book. I hope to write several more books. Oh, so, really? Oh, yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. You got, you got something, you know, sketched out on the computer already, or are you a, a write-by-hand guy?
1: Um, well, I used to be a write-by-hand guy, but uh, but I'm getting better at doing it on the computer. I have two novels that are in complete first draft form that I want to work on and and uh, make better and hopefully get published. And then I have, in the nonfiction realm, I actually am committed to uh, producing several chapters for some academic anthologies um, over the coming months and then in a year, roughly. But I also um, have a couple of ideas for other nonfiction books. One more of a of a study about the the, uh, the the sort of the the foundation of identity recognition for trans people, and then the other um, a sort of a more poetic and deeper, more deeply personal type of memoir then becoming a visible man gets called a memoir it's not fully a memoir it's it's much more than a memoir it has elements of memoir but it also is um, it includes theory it includes history it includes medical information it includes uh, you, you know lots and lots of it includes exposition lots and lots of things so uh but something much more um uh, yeah, deep, more deep and poetic.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you have to promise me that when these other things come out, you'll keep me posted. You'll let me share the good news, and you'll come back and share it with our viewers.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. I promise.
0: Okay, I'm going to hold you to that. So, watch okay. It. Thank you so much. I hope that I certainly hope that our listeners have learned something. Certainly you've given me some nice tools for, uh, for chit chat with other people. I love, I love little tools that I can use to like, and I thank you so much. And I will be looking forward to those new books.
1: Thanks. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Take care now. Thanks again. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for Once and Future Authors. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Reviews help other interested listeners to find the show, so your review could launch new books every day. Thanks again for joining us, and happy writing.